When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about plastics and pollution. The problem isn't just all the plastic in the oceans, it's the manufacturing of plastic, a toxic petrochemical. Zoe Carpenter will report. Also, in Trump's latest blow-up over immigration, Stephen Miller has played a central role goading him to close the border, warning him of the dangers of looking weak, and encouraging his sudden purge of his homeland security team. But who is this Stephen Miller? He grew up in liberal Santa Monica. What happened? What went wrong? Lori Weiner will report. But first, Monday was tax day in America. Bernie Sanders released his tax returns, but Donald Trump didn't release his. You may recall that the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee formally requested six years of Trump's personal and business tax returns earlier this month. On Saturday, that committee chair, Democrat Richard Neal, gave the IRS until April 23rd to provide him with those tax returns. Trump, of course, has said he won't do it, and he said the law is 100% on his side. For comment, we turn to the journalist who's done more reporting on Trump's taxes and financial dealings than anyone else, David K. Johnston. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter who previously worked at the New York Times. He's the founder and editor of dcreport.org. He's also a contributor to The Nation. His most recent book is titled, It's Even Worse Than You Think, What the Trump Administration is Doing to America. David K. Johnston, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me on again. Well, does the IRS have to hand over Trump's tax returns to the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee? If they follow the law, they absolutely have to hand it over. Under a 1924 anti-corruption law that was passed because of Teapot Dome, a Harding administration scandal, Congress passed a law saying it can look at anybody's tax return at any time. And in the 85-year history of this law, the IRS has always responded appropriately to the request and turned over everything that was asked. And uh, what are the exceptions to this law? There aren't any. It says Congress shall provide upon written request. That's it. Well, they have a written request. It's a specific request, and therefore they shall provide. The statement by Donald Trump that the law is 100% on his side is just classic Trumpian lying. Take something that is true, state the exact opposite, and fool people who either don't know the law, or if they hear journalists like me who read the law and teach the law, 
just say, you know, you just made that up or you're a liar. That's how a Trumpian cult making works. Does the IRS commissioner have any alternative to the request for Trump's tax returns? What what happens if he doesn't comply? There's another section of the tax code that says any federal employee dealing with any aspect of the tax code who either does not comply or who fails to act, so both sins of omission and commission, shall be removed from office and is subject to prosecution and upon conviction five years in prison and a $10,000 fine. So the law here is not only clear as to the IRS commissioner's duty, he shall furnish, but it's also clear that failure to do so would subject him to these penalties. So first of all, the enforcement of this law that says the head of the IRS shall be removed from office if he fails to comply with the law, this is not just up to Attorney General Barr. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. First of all, a, a U.S. attorney's office could enforce the action, although that seems unlikely in this administration. But the next uh, administration, if it chooses, could go back and, even if the IRS commissioner has left, prosecute him for failure to turn over the documents. And, of course, Congress can hold the commissioner in contempt, uh, and uh, Congress can also go to federal court to enforce its orders. Now, I don't know anything about the IRS commissioner. I learned from your website, dcreport.org, that he's a man named Charles Rettig. He's a Trump appointee. Tell us a little about Charles Rettig. Well, we call him uh, Donald Trump's man at the IRS. Almost every uh, IRS commissioner has been a tax lawyer. But Charles Rettig is not like most of these other tax lawyers. He isn't in the business of tax planning. He's in the business of representing tax cheats who get caught. His uh, law office is in Beverly Hills, and that's his specialty, is turning uh, taxes owed by people who got caught into small amounts of money and, more importantly, keeping them from being indicted. As we put it, he's one of the foxes who is not just in charge of the hen house, but is in a position to redesign the hen house. Uh, Trump's personal lawyer on Monday urged the Treasury Department uh, not to hand over Trump's tax returns. That lawyer said the Democrats uh, on the House Ways and Means Committee had, quote, a radical view of unchecked congressional power, close quote, and that to comply with their request would turn the IRS into a political weapon of the radical Democrats. Is that a good legal argument? No, it may be a good political argument with Trump's base, but as a legal matter, uh, if my students at Syracuse Law were to bring that up, you know, I, I would have to work hard not to laugh at them because it's a ridiculous argument. There is no limit in the Section 6103 that says you can only ask for a tax return if you're a Republican or if you hew to certain political views. It simply says, upon written request, the return shall be provided. It could not be more clear. Now, the, of course, the supervisor of the IRS commissioner, the boss of the IRS commissioner, is the Treasury Secretary. That's Steve Mnuchin. He said sort of the opposite of what Trump's personal lawyer said. He said, quote, our intent is to follow the law, close quote, how do you explain the difference between the legal positions of Trump's personal lawyer and Trump's Treasury Secretary? Well, Jonathan, this is exactly what got me onto this story. I noticed that Trump's 
his lawyers and the acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, were making these wild, reckless, lawless statements. But Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, and Reddick, the IRS Commissioner, both made nuanced statements and carefully uh, avoided refusing to comply and instead said, we're trying to understand how to comply with the law. It's our intent to comply with the law, but we need more time to learn what the law says. It should take you literally about 10 seconds to learn what the law says. And that's when I thought, what's going on here? And it's what got me on to the section of the tax code that says, any federal employee who interferes, obstructs, or fails to act is subject to removal, prosecution, and fine. So I think what Mnuchin is trying to do here is thread a needle. He wants to uh, continue to show his loyalty to Trump, not to the Constitution as his oath of office requires, but to Trump. And at the same time, he's trying to evade the law that says there must be compliance with the request. The New York Times news story on this reported that, quote, the fight over Trump's tax returns is expected to turn into a protracted legal battle that will likely make its way to the Supreme Court. Do you think that's right? And does the Republican majority on the court have a way to rule in Trump's favor? It may lead to a protracted fight. It's also possible that this will get fast-tracked and get right to the Supreme Court. And as someone who reads Supreme Court decisions, um, I don't particularly care for the jurisprudence of John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States, but nothing in his opinions suggests that he would sell the soul and integrity of the court to favor Donald Trump. Uh, Every indication is that he would uphold the law. And I would not be surprised if you got a 7-2 or 9-0 Uh, decision from the Supreme Court that they have to turn over the documents because there is no legal basis whatsoever for refusing to do so. There may be a political argument we don't want to do it, but we don't make decisions by men. We make decisions uh, under law. Well, of course, there's a, a, a completely different question, which is the really interesting one. What do you think is in Trump's tax returns? Why do you think he's trying so hard to keep them secret? Well, there's a bunch of reasons here. Number one, uh, Trump's tax returns will show uh, that he is not anywhere near as wealthy as he claimed. Remember during the campaign, he kept saying he was worth more than $10 billion. But after he became president, he signed under oath his disclosure statement and 90% of his wealth vanished. And even that statement, which I've analyzed, uh, overstates his income, I mean his wealth. There's never been a scintilla of verifiable evidence that Trump is a billionaire. And I'm the guy who revealed back in 1990 when he said he was worth $3 billion that uh, he wasn't a billionaire. And we eventually found out he had a negative net worth of about $295 million. Uh, Hmm. Secondly, Donald Trump is a tax cheat. He had two trials for income tax fraud by the state of New York and the city of New York. In both cases, he lost. In fact, in one of those trials, his own longtime tax attorney and accountant, Jack Mitnick, testified against him. He was shown the filed tax return, which was a photocopy, by the way, and testified, that's my signature on the return, but neither I nor my firm prepared that tax return. That's as good a badge of fraud as you're ever going to find. It indicates that Donald Trump took the tax return that was prepared changed it, and then with a photocopy machine, put the uh, signature of Jack Mitnick on it. Donald Trump is a confessed sales tax cheat who Mayor Ed Koch of New York said should should have served 
15 days in prison or in jail for his crime. Trump has a long history of hiding records from auditors, cheating governments, using two sets of numbers. Uh, so his tax returns are highly likely to show tax cheating. And finally, uh, they may well establish how much money he has been getting from Russian, Saudis, uh, people from the Emirates and elsewhere, and whether he is engaged, as I think the record is pretty clear he has been, in money laundering for these people through real estate transactions and other actions that make no business sense, but when closely examined, show exactly what we see when there's money laundering. Just a technical question here. Where do you report payments from Russian oligarchs on your tax return? Trump has over 500 business entities, and the tax return is the beginning point for an audit. You then would uh, examine the books and records that are behind it. Now, Trump has a long history of destroying or claiming he destroyed business records to thwart auditors. This happened particularly with the city of New York when he tried to cheat the city out of about $2.9 million. But there may actually be transactions reported right in the tax returns that would tell you that money came from various places because it may list entities to which he is obligated or is in partnership with or received money from or shared profits with. And the request by Chairman Neal of the House Ways and Means Committee was very targeted. It cited six specific Trump businesses. Out of over 500 businesses, that suggests to me that they knew what they were looking for. They didn't just randomly ask. And what do you think the political effect would be if voters learned from Trump's tax return that he has been uh, a tax cheat? As I recall, this was a huge issue in the final downfall of Richard Nixon. That's right. And by the way, the very law that resulted in Richard Nixon being established to be a tax cheat, he was pardoned. So nothing happened to him, but his tax lawyer went to prison, was when Congress invoked the law that the Trump people are now trying to resist about turning over tax returns. This was a big scandal in 1974 about Nixon and his taxes. I frankly think that among people who are strong Trump supporters, this will have little impact. Uh, It is troubling to me as someone who's reported on taxes my whole life, but especially the last 25 years, how many people... Uh, applaud tax cheats. They hate America because taxes, of course, are America. As the great conservative uh, Edmund Burke taught, the revenue of the state is the state. So if you hate taxes and applaud tax cheats, you're really hating our country. But um, amazing numbers of people feel exactly that way. The impact it would matter is on people on the margin people who have been with Trump but are uneasy with him because of all of his other behavior. And if he has committed federal tax crimes, then he has committed New York state tax crimes because New York state tax law cues very closely to federal laws. So the state of New York can indict Trump uh, if it finds evidence of tax cheating. And one would hope that uh, in the idea that presidents are not above the law, if they have solid evidence that he's a tax chief, that a grand jury will be impaneled and the state will, in fact, indict, prosecute, and if convicted, imprison Donald Trump as a tax chief. David K. Johnston, he wrote about the law that requires Mnuchin to turn over Trump's taxes or go directly to jail for the Daily Beast. 
And you can read more of his great stuff at dcreport.org. Thank you, David. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me. We need to talk about the toxic consequences of America's plastics boom. For a report, we turn to Zoe Carpenter. She's the nation's associate Washington editor. She worked previously for Rolling Stone. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and other media outlets. Zoe Carpenter, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. We hear a lot about plastic in the ocean. We've heard about this giant swirling patch of plastics in the Pacific. What do we know about how much plastic waste ends up in the ocean? Well, in short, there is a lot of it. Only about 9% of plastic that's used ever gets recycled. And the rest of it either gets burned or buried uh, or washes into watersheds and eventually out into the ocean where it breaks down into tiny little particles and poisons wildlife and creates all sorts of problems. Uh, A mid-range estimate is about 8 million tons per year or one dump truck per minute of plastic is, is getting into the oceans every year. Well, I understand that Dow Chemical, ExxonMobil, Chevron Phillips, and other big plastic manufacturers have announced the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. They're going to spend $1 billion on recycling and cleanup. That sounds great. So is it time to thank them? Um, Well, certainly, um, there is a lot of cleanup that's needed, and and everyone, uh, we should have all hands on deck for the cleanup. But if we only focus on cleanup, we're missing the biggest part of the picture here, which is the production of plastic, and and the fact that we're increasingly producing more and more plastic, and there are no, no plans for how to effectively prevent it from causing pollution. And so cleaning, cleaning things up, obviously, there's just so much plastic out there that you're never going to be able to clean all of it up, especially given the fact that these same companies that are loudly broadcasting their um, assistance for the cleanup efforts are now um, investing tens of billions of dollars into dramatically scaling up their plastics production in the United States and elsewhere. There are over 300 petrochemical projects underway or newly completed in the U.S. alone. And $65 billion to expand plastic production in the United States. So that's $1 billion to reduce plastics and $65 billion to produce more plastics. And that's just inside the United States. I thought plastic stuff came mostly from Asia. Well, we've heard that narrative repeated over and over, that that the plastic waste problem is because of developing countries and their inadequate waste infrastructure systems. There is a lot of plastic that's made in Asia, but it's also made in the Middle East, and increasingly it's being made right here in the U.S. And that is thanks to the fracking revolution, which has created a glut of raw material um, for the creation of plastic, specifically ethane gas, which can be turned into ethylene and then polyethylene. Um, which is the building block for a wide range of plastic products from bottles to bags. Until I read your article in The Nation, I had only a vague idea of where plastics come from and and who makes plastics. You mean that Exxon and Chevron make shrink wrap and hair clips and fake ferns and, I don't know, (laughs) spatulas? Sort of. They make the precursors for those uh, products. 
So when you drill an oil or a gas well, there are natural gas liquids that come along with the petroleum or the natural gas that you're getting out of that well. Um, And those natural gas liquids include ethane. And you can crack it, as they say in the industry, um, break apart the molecules using heat and pressure, and reconfigure them to form plastic resin. So um, often that comes out as the form of little pellets, plastic pellets, like what you might find inside of a Beanie Baby. And those pellets can then be shipped off to other refineries or to other manufacturing facilities where it can be turned into a variety of plastic products. So Exxon, Shell, um, those companies are known as you know major integrated oil companies because they have both the sort of typical oil and gas um, operations that we normally associate with them, but then they also have these chemical divisions. And those chemical divisions, which includes the, the plastic manufacturing, are becoming an increasingly important source of their, of their business and of their profits. Cracking releases chemicals into the atmosphere, and it turns out these are really toxic chemicals, and people breathe them in places like Portland, Texas. It's a place that you went to. Tell us about Portland, Texas. Portland is just north of Corpus Christi, and it's sort of on the fringes of what has historically been a pretty heavy industrial area. But it's always been just slightly removed from that industry in Corpus Christi. And now ExxonMobil, in partnership with the Saudi Basic Industries Corporation, which is one of the largest um, petrochemical producers in the world, they're building what will be the largest ethane cracker in the world right next to Portland. But it's it's right outside the city limits, which is convenient because it means that the city council um, had no say over the permitting for it. It's on unincorporated county land. And residents there are really concerned about the health effects from this facility. Ethane crackers do emit um, all sorts of possible carcinogens um, and known carcinogens, sulfur dioxide, volatile organic compounds, um, and nitrogen oxides, which can combine to form ozone smog, and then carcinogens including benzene, formaldehyde, um, for example. So at low concentrations, these facilities carry risks of eye and throat irritation and respiratory problems and headaches, for instance. And then at um, high concentrations, um, the risks are more serious damage to vital organs, the central nervous system, and, and cancer. And I think, you know, if you look at a place like southern Louisiana, the corridor in between Baton Rouge and uh, New Orleans that's known as Cancer Alley, you can really see how that high concentration of petrochemical facilities plays out in terms of its effects on the local population. So where is the Environmental Protection Agency in all this? Shouldn't they be protecting the environment? Yeah, well, um, (laughs) I think we've seen a lot of inaction under the Trump administration. And a lot of these facilities actually are being permitted by state agencies. And so it's the state agencies um, that really have the most say over the establishment of these kinds of facilities. And in states like Texas and in Louisiana, where most of these facilities, these new plastics facilities are being proposed and being built, um, the state environmental agencies have a reputation for being very cozy with industry um, and for being uh, loath to uh, prevent the permitting process from, from going forward. Well, let's talk about the resistance to the petrochemical industry and the cancer threats it poses on the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coasts. Well, you know, the resistance 
is growing, uh, certainly in communities like Portland um, and in Louisiana's St. James Parish, which is a majority black community spanning the Mississippi River. And the, the issue here is that many of these decisions about the siting of these facilities and the beginning of the permitting process started before the communities were even really aware of what was going on. Um, in, in Texas, for example, in Portland, Texas, um, Exxon was starting, was going through the process of searching for the site with help from the governor's office before anyone in town even knew what was happening. They were using a code name for the project called Pro- Project Yosemite. So there is there are lots of concerns about the transparency in these big decisions that are being made. Many small towns that um, are greenlighting projects that will affect entire regions. I, I think a lot of people are, are starting to push more and more for the producers of plastic to take responsibility for the full cost of collecting and recycling the products that they're selling. And it's this is a little bit analogous to climate change, which many of these same countries are, or, sorry, many of these same companies are implicated in. They're not asked to pay the externalities of the product that they're selling. And so how do we force them to actually pay for the full damage of what their products are, are doing to the environment? In the story of uh, petrochemicals, uh, petrochemical companies' uh, plastics production gets worse. Uh, we've been talking about the Gulf Coast of Texas and, and Louisiana, but I learned from your article in The Nation that petrochemicals are being described as the answer to the economic problems of Appalachia, that the coal mines closing have opened the door to a whole new uh, industry uh, in the former coal country, petrochemicals. Yeah, this is a really big development that I think has flown below the radar for the past couple of years. The Marcellus Shale, which runs under parts of Pennsylvania and Ohio, is one of the biggest fracking hotspots in the country. And so there's a lot of ethane coming out of the Marcellus Shale. Um, And so from an industry perspective, it's an obvious region in which to scale up plastic production since there's so much of the raw material right there. And so what they're talking about is a brand-new petrochemical corridor that will run down the upper Ohio River Valley. And from the industry's perspective, this is, you know, a bright new economic opportunity to replace some of what steel and coal has left behind. Um, But a lot of people look at what's happened in Louisiana and in Texas and say, hey, we don't want a brand-new cancer alley in the Ohio River Valley, and let's stop and stop and think about what we're really doing here and how it's really going to deepen our investment in the fossil fuel economy and and is that really the way of the future. Uh, Many of the people, the local activists who are pushing back against this new petrochemical build-out are pointing to the example of their northern um, or their neighbor in New York, um, which has gone kind of the opposite direction and is putting a lot of investment into solar and other renewable infrastructure and and jobs. And um, so the people in some people in Pennsylvania are asking the question, is doubling down on fossil fuels really the only way to boost our economy, especially since that kind of reliance on the fossil fuel industry hasn't really paid off for us in the past? Zoe Carpenter, she wrote the cover story for The Nation on the toxic consequences of America's plastics boom. It's a major work of reporting on a crucial issue. You can read it at thenation.com. Zoe, thanks for this report, and thanks for talking with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you.
In President Trump's latest blow-up over immigration, Stephen Miller has played the central role, goading him to close the border, warning him of the dangers of looking weak, and encouraging Trump's sudden purge of his Homeland Security team, including the firing of the head of the Department of Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen, as well as the head of the Border Patrol. The Washington Post describes Stephen Miller as ascendant among Trump advisors, quote, as he pushes a frustrated president to champion draconian border policies and rhetoric. He's all but untouchable in the White House at this point, where, according to the Washington Post, Stephen Miller represents Trump's id. He grew up in one of the most progressive cities in America, Santa Monica. He's from a middle-class Jewish family. He went to public schools, including Santa Monica High School. What happened to Stephen Miller? What explains how he became a fiery right-wing ideologue? What explains his triumph in Trumpland? For some answers, we turn to Lori Weiner. She did a deep dive into Stephen Miller's early life for L.A. Magazine. She's a longtime journalist who's been on staff at the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the L.A. Times. She's also a founding editor of the L.A. Review of Books. Lori Weiner, welcome. Thank you, John. Well, just a bit of history. Remember Trump's original Muslim travel ban from his first week in office, that disaster that was stopped by the court? Stephen Miller helped draft that executive order. And remember when the federal government shut down over that high-stakes standoff over immigration? Stephen Miller was accused of derailing the negotiations. So he's done a lot, mostly on immigration. Let's start with the basics of young Stephen Miller. Before he became this kind of hyperactive right-wing activist, he grew up in Santa Monica. You asked people there about his formative years. How many people did you talk to? I contacted about 100 people, but um, I spoke to about 35, and about 20 of those went on the record. There are old family friends who did not want to go on the record, and there are people from his high school who simply did not want to talk about him. Let's start with the parents. Maybe it's all their fault? Probably the mother's fault. (laughs) That's what I think. They are uh, Michael and Miriam Miller, and they are uh, real estate. um, They have a real estate investment company, and they manage uh, about 2,500 properties, uh, residential units. And they were very, very wealthy, um, always. I mean, at least since the early 80s, uh, Michael's father, Jacob, known as Jay, was also in real estate, and and he became very wealthy. He helped develop parts of Brentwood near the freeway in the early 80s. And when he died in 2015, his house in Malibu Cove, shortly afterwards, sold for $7 million. So This was, is the grandfather. Yes, Jacob Jay is the grandfather. Michael is the father. And what do we know about the father, the parents' politics when young Stephen was, you know, a kid? Well, the parents were both liberal when they were young people in the early 70s. She got a degree in sociology from Columbia in 72. And he, when he was an undergraduate at um, UC Santa Cruz, he was against the Vietnam War. He was pro-Palestinian. So at some point, their politics changed, 
And Stephen may have been a linchpin in changing their politics because he became very politicized when he was only when he was in high school, after, right after nine eleven. <laughs> okay. And then the parents followed, and now, according to old friends of Michael Miller's, um, Michael is is quite far to the right. So they really had an evolution because they were very gung-ho for Ted Cruz in 2016. So they were not Donald Trump supporters, but they were very happy when their son went to work for him. And Stephen may have helped lead them there. Well, you interviewed a lot of his childhood friends and school classmates, and one of them told you that in middle school, Stephen Miller was, quote, a quiet, shy kid, close quote, that change in his politics and his personality occurred in high school, which is when he became what I would call a right-wing jerk. After 9-11, he started to become outraged at things that were going on around him at Santa Monica High School. He was outraged that there were so many Hispanic uh, students there. Yeah, it, it struck me from reading your piece in LA Magazine that he was especially focused on the Hispanic club at Santa Monica High School. They didn't really have anything to do with 9-11. What was his beef with the Hispanic Club? Well, first he noted that there were many Hispanic students at the school, but very few in his honors classes. And there was uh, there were movements afoot to help to, for bilingual education, um, that the school board was, was trying to help students who were having trouble in English. He was very much against these measures. He would go to the school board meetings regularly and argue against this. And uh, he said that we were, being, we were being disrespectful to Hispanics by giving them these crutches. The early focus on the Hispanic club at Santa Monica High does sort of anticipate his obsession with the border, with Mexicans and Central Americans coming to the United States. That is, seems to have remained a central, what shall we call it, preoccupation, obsession of his ever since high school. A turning point in his high school years seems to be something his classmates told you about called the janitor speech. What what was the janitor speech? Well, I have good news for your listeners. Anyone can listen to and watch the janitor speech on the internet, Jeez. and I highly recommend it. But I'll do my my best imitation of Stephen Thank Miller. You. He he's he's running for some something. I don't think it's class president, but he's running for some class office, which he did not win. He gets up and he says, "Is anyone else outraged?" by the fact that we have to pick up our own garbage when we have janitors to do that. And he kind of loses it a little bit. <laughs> and yeah, so people were just shocked and they were like, is he kidding? Is he trying to get laughs? What is happening? I think I think that we all try to get attention whatever way we can with whatever we're given. And I think he found this as his way to become a personage at Santa Monica High School. I also think he has a a very prominent sadistic streak that was coming out even then. May I read you something brief that he wrote when he was 16 years old? And Please. Um, so he, this is when one of his crusades at the high school was to make sure that the, the Pledge of Allegiance was said uh, every morning. They were not saying the Pledge of Allegiance, and he, he did succeed in getting it uh, recited twice a week in Santa Monica High School. But anyway, he wrote a piece about that. And um, he said that um, at least one would hope that on Veterans Day or Thanksgiving, students are taught about our brave U.S. soldiers or the courageous pilgrims. 
but no such explanations are given. It's kind of hard to believe that no one was taught about the pilgrims. But anyway, and then he says, after all, the United States has used our soldiers to kill innocent people. And the same Indians that helped the pilgrims were either shot or put on reservations. I suppose then that our country would have been better off if we, if our soldiers had never killed anyone and we watched as our nation was obliterated by the evil in the world as we sung songs of peace and love. Or better yet, we could have lived with the Indians. We could have lived with the Indians, learning how to finger pain and make teepees, excusing their scalping of frontiersmen as part of their culture. <sighs> so his need to, you know, to belittle was always there. But I, I thought that was interesting because he says the Indians helped the pilgrims. And then in the very next sentence, he calls them evil. Mm-hmm. And so some of his seams are showing here, but he he does not show his seams anymore. One person you talked to said that in high school, quote, it seemed like he wanted people to hate him, close quote. Yeah, I I think, again, you know, that is uh, attention is oxygen to him. Well, another fascinating fact that you uncovered, uh, one of his uh, high school classmates told you, quote, he never went to parties. He didn't express any interest in dating. He was a virtual loner obsessed with guns at age 17. Scary, close quote. Yes. When he began to get politicized uh, at age 15 or 16. His best friend was a guy named Chris Moritz, who, of course, I tried to contact in every possible way I could think of. Um, But of course, he did not want to talk. But Stephen and Chris were inseparable. They dressed identically. They 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 dressed in suits and ties and they brought briefcases to school. And uh, of course, they were only people in Santa Monica High dressing that way. And Chris Moritz also wrote a bunch of pieces like the one I just read from Stephen Miller. And and the two of them really helped cement each other's political beliefs and, and status as outsiders um, at Santa Monica uh, High School. And the other thing that you found about his high school days was that he complained often to the school administration that he was being bullied and victimized by his classmates. Was he being bullied and victimized by his classmates? I do not believe that he was. Uh, um, the people that, that I did speak to said no one bullied him. In fact, the administration went out of their way to accommodate some of his beliefs and requests, such as bringing to campus right-wing radio hosts uh, Larry Elder and David Horowitz to speak on campus. They did kind of put up a fight about it, but Stephen was extremely savvy about how to fight these battles, even at age 16, and he did get those speakers to come. So David Horowitz and and, uh, Larry Elder, were these mentors to him? Did he learn his lines from them? I don't think so. I think that, well, they, I spoke to both of them. They're very proud that they had any part in um, helping to bring up this young man. But I think, you know, it's, it's similar to the situation with Miller and Trump. It's like he's leading them. I mean, he goes beyond what they believe. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And he became himself, and I don't think anyone took him there. Lori Weiner, she reported on Stephen Miller's high school years. He's exactly the same now as he was in high school. That was for L.A. Magazine. Lori Weiner, thanks for coming in today. Such a pleasure. So, yeah.
Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.